is I Only Touch Greatness Podcast with Ryan Hayes and Big Mike. We are going live. We got Kelly Rudy dropping in. Legendary Kelly Rudy dropping in on I Only Touch Greatness Podcast with Hayes and Big Mike. This is the hottest place, 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 place. for big, big, big name interviews in Vancouver. Listen to it. With Ryan Hayes and Big, big Mike. Mike, Mike. Yeah. Do you guys have me? Yeah, yeah we got you. Nice. Now, who's Ryan and who's Mike? I'm Ryan. I'm Mike. Okay, got it. Nice, and- to, nice to meet you, Kelly. Nice to meet you guys. How's what it going? Are, good, good. Thank you so much, man, for taking your time today for us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. This is a huge honor. You're a legend, especially in the broadcasting business. Oops, we're all good. Just so we have uh, – hang on. Let me just fix the screen. You guys live in Vancouver? Yeah. yeah. Love that city. I'm The only thing I'm disappointed about when I joined uh, Rogers Sportsnet is that I never go to Vancouver anymore. And that happens to be my favorite city. Maybe, well, not only in Canada, but maybe in the world. I love going there. Okay, well, uh, we might as well start with, uh, do you remember draft day and uh, when you got drafted and where you were? All right, so full disclosure before I tell my draft story goes back to 1980. Since the pandemic. Here we uh, are. I just want to let you know before, let me cut you off. Let me know beforehand that we're actually drinking on here. And every time that we say, um, yeah, we're, we're going to have to drink one. Um, okay. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a nice cold grosh going. You can see nice. that. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty disciplined. I'm, I've been a broadcaster for 21 years, and never once in my entire career did I ever have a drink, a sip, or anything for a TV or radio interview. But since since this pandemic, I think the rules are lightened for all of us, and uh, we're just chilling and uh, having a good time. So cheers to that, everybody. Okay, so let's go back to 1980. I'm playing for the Medicine Hat Tigers. Um, it was after my second year, and there were rumblings throughout the uh, season that I might get drafted. And I have to tell you guys, uh, I didn't come from a hockey family. We weren't really a sports family. So I had an idea what that meant, but not in its entirety, really. And, and I, I know some, somewhere I read in a magazine I was rated for the third or fourth round, which I thought was pretty good. And uh, yet not one single agent contacted me the entire season. And, and so I had no expectations. Back then, the draft was in Montreal, but only certain first-round draft choices would ever go to the draft, right? So people like myself that weren't rated in the first round, there's no need to go. Um, so I'm playing ball hockey in my parents' basement with my brother uh, that afternoon, afternoon of the draft, and uh, we're having a great time. I'm carefree, not really thinking much about the draft and uh, how it might impact my life. My brother, the phone rings. My brother runs upstairs, answers the phone, calls me up and says, Kelly, there's a guy on the phone that would like to talk to you. So I get on the phone and man introduces himself as Jimmy Debolano with the New York Islanders and said, Kelly, 
uh, we've just drafted you in the second round, and uh, congratulations, all that. Uh, 38th overall. 38th overall, that's right. And uh, so I, I didn't really know what that meant back then. Of course, the only correspondence you would get were letters throughout the, the summer. And uh, they explained to me that, uh, yes, indeed, I would be going to training camp, which wasn't the norm for all draftees back then. Uh, sometimes, depending on, I think, where they thought you were uh, in your development stage, if, you're, if, you're, if you would be going to training camp or not. For me, I was lucky I went. Uh, I even played in the first preseason game. It was in the historic Chicago Stadium. And it was just mind-boggling to be in that beautiful historic building the goalie at the other end was Tony Esposito that night. Wow. Right? Can you imagine that? Now, I'll go back here a little bit, uh, Ryan and Mike. So the Islanders had me rated in the third or fourth round as well. But uh, they also had Don Beaupre and I rated exactly the same. And uh, so they, they were hopeful at some point that either in the third or fourth round they could draft Don or myself. Um, and the Minnesota North Stars – the seventh or 37th pick overall, they chose Don Beaupre and the Islanders were next. And so they said, Jimmy Devlano told me this years later that they had a dilemma. They, cause they wanted me badly or Don, but now that Don was chosen in the second round, they didn't think they could wait for the third or fourth round. So they chose me next. So, uh, you know, back then money wasn't uh, spectacular, but it put a few more bucks in my pocket. And so uh, I thank the Minnesota North Stars for taking Don Beaupre. <laughs> uh, you, you, were in, you were in an overtime game, which they called the Easter Easter Epic. Yeah. And how – that must have been a long game. A oh. couple, ba couple bathroom breaks? Uh, every intermission. Had to yeah. <laughs> None uh, of those little longer ones where they come out and halfway oh, through the game. Gosh. I think that was a little different scenario. I think we had something else going on. But, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. But for, for us, I mean – going back to 87 in that game so something uh keep in mind when we leading up to that game we were down in that series 3-1 to the capitals uh we fought our way back to tie it and then we go into game seven and we were without dennis botman mike bossy brent sutter three of our best players and brian trotche was playing with a separated left shoulder so I would say going into that game, the odds were stacked against us. But we found a way to persevere. Uh, the game started at 7.30 in the, uh, in the evening. It ended at four minutes to two in the morning. And uh, I look back on it, you know, back then we didn't know about uh, hydration and nutrition and all those sorts of things. So immediately after the game was over, you know, you go through the handshake line, did a couple of interviews and so on. By the time I'm getting my gear off, probably 2.10, 2.15 in the morning. And so by the time I get to my skates, start unlacing them, take my skates off, my toes were so – or I was so dehydrated, my toes immediately curled under. That's <laughs> – so what did I do wisely, guys? I downed two quick beers in the dressing room, still in my gear. Back then in those days, you had beer in the dressing room, uh, especially after a win. And so that was a really good feeling. But uh, maybe two beers was a little excessive because, boy, did it go to my head quickly. I play beer league hockey, and uh, I drink a lot of beers in between games, in between periods, pre-game. I couldn't do that. I tried that with, after my first year playing in Medicine Hat. Uh, we, I came back early because there was a charity hockey game. And so we played the first period, and uh, I don't think I gave up any goals. And the guys are having beer in the 
dressing room between periods and I had one or two. Oh, I, I, I was terrible at that. I could not play with the alcohol in my system. I never could, never tried it. Like I, you know, I, I just, I love playing squash and some squash guys out there, they're incredibly fit, but after a game, they can have a beer and then go back on the court. I, I could never do that ever. I play beer league cross and I can't drink before. A lot of the guys do, but yeah, I, no, I can't do it. For me, we have our work hockey tournament. You're playing like say four or five games in a weekend. And you're having to got to make sure you have a couple of beers in there. So that second game in the afternoon, you're going out there with sluggish legs, like Sergio Lomeso. Oh, that's funny. I don't know how guys can do that. Good on you, Ryan. What position do you play? I'm right wing, and I wear number 14, like Theo Fleury. Oh, I like it. How about you, Mike? Uh, number 89, and I play forward. Nice. Paddy Lafontaine got the winner in that game, correct? Yes, he did, but it was incredible. Uh, I watched it recently, and so a number of guys that aren't maybe as familiar as Pat uh, LaFontaine were instrumental in that goal. So uh, Ken Leiter was a, a really good young defenseman that we had, and uh, he's number 29. He's uh, coming through the neutral zone. He weaves through at the blue line a couple of the capitals and uh, enters the zone and uh, throws a puck around, and Gord Deneen was the right defenseman on that play. And he noticed the puck coming in, so he pinches down the right-hand boards, and Pat LaFontaine, the center, covers for Gord uh, properly at his point position. So Gord races down, goes behind the net, fires the puck from the uh, what would be uh, Bob Mason's right corner, it hits somebody's stick along the way. I can't remember who. Goes back to the point position where Gord had vacated it, but there's uh, Patty LaFontaine. He somehow spins around, and the puck is bouncing. Somehow he gets control of it. But Dale Henry, number 20 on our team, was a guy from Saskatoon, and uh, he wisely positioned himself right in front of the net. Now, I don't know if he actually deflected it or just screened Bob Mason or if it was deflected by one of the Capitals along the way. But that's a story how Pat uh, scored that game-winning goal. Incredibly important for all of us. But without those other guys on the ice, Pat wouldn't have had the ability to make that shot. Well, and yourself, uh, 73 saves in that game. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to say about that. That was just one of those games where you, I was feeling really, really good, of course. Uh, really nervous to start the game. I remember Andy Van Helleman was the official, which uh, – uh, eased my mind because I really enjoyed working games with Andy because he was a, a really calm guy, very good-natured. You could have a conversation with him. And uh, at one point, I can't remember if it was the second or third overtime, and uh, the whistle blows, and Andy and I both look up at the score clock, and throughout the game, as overtime's going on, in the Capitals' uh, uh, arena – on the scoreboard, they'd flash, this is now the 10th longest game in NHL history. This is now the ninth longest. And every single break it seemed, there was a new thing. And I think at one point, it was the fifth longest. I think it's ninth or 10th now. And uh, Andy and I looked at each other and had a, a little chuckle and kind of, that's kind of cool. Unbeknownst to me, my mom and dad are watching the CBC broadcast of it with Bob Cole and Harry Neal. And I guess the camera was on Andy and I in that break. And Harry said something like, wouldn't that be great if that's your goalie, it's 
triple overtime and he's having a, a chuckle with the official. That's the kind of guy you need in the net, somebody that's nice and relaxed. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that happens to be, I'm not saying it because you're talking to me, but that happens to be still an NHL record for most saves in a playoff game, 73. At the time, it was the longest game of the, in history, right? It's longest seventh game, and it still is. Playoff game, seventh game, you're correct. But uh, twice as a broadcaster, I've been on a broadcast with Ron McLean when uh, Roberto Luongo and Ed Belfour had 72 saves. And I'm thinking, well, of course, it's imminent. There, somebody's going to break the record. And the very next shot ended the game. And huh. so I couldn't – I still can't believe it. And, you know, I, after the Luongo night where he had 72 saves and he gave up a really funky goal, I think it was to Scott Niedermeyer, um, and, and I went on the radio in Vancouver the next day, and I said, honestly, I fully expect somebody in no time to make like 100 saves or something. When you consider how strong the teams are defensively, the size of the goalies, the equipment that they wear – and it, it still shocks me to this day that nobody's uh, beaten that record. Who's got that puck? Great question. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> you know what? I foolishly I, I know where the I know where my game used goalie stick is. I foolishly gave it to a person that will remain nameless because he asked for it. I didn't recognize the significance of that stick. I wish that was in my co collection. But uh, just days later, I, I gave it to that person. And uh, I know they, they appreciate it. And uh, I think he's shown it at certain shows and so on. But uh, that'd be nice to have in my collection. Do you have a nice collection of all your old memorabilia? I do. Um, almost nothing in my house, I have to tell you. Other than on occasion when I'll do interviews, I have a, a nice office in my house. Uh, part of my uh, bookshelf behind me has a few hockey uh, items. A lot of it has to do with the history uh, of the Western or of Western Canada, in particular the Rocky Mountains. I'm a huge outdoor enthusiast, and so uh, I like to read about the explorers and uh, that sort of thing. But there's some hockey stuff there. I have a couple storage units though that uh, store all my hockey uh, memorabilia. I had some great advice when I was traded to Los Angeles uh, from Wayne Gretzky. So uh, typically the players don't get their gear, right? It's uh, it's the Although you wear it, it's the property of the organization. So uh, Wayne back then, uh, or actually you did have your equipment back then, but teams were starting to recognize that it's valuable and they're, they're going to keep uh, possession of it. So at around 89 or 90, I was doing a contract and Wayne said, do yourself a favor and get a clause in your contract that says you get all your equipment, including all your game-used uh, goalie sticks. And so I have quite a vast collection. Uh, I don't know how many sticks I'd have, but I would bet it ballpark be three or four hundred, um, and all all uh, game used, dated, and everything. So one day I'm going to get rid of that collection. And um, you know, I, I've wrestled with this, you guys, because I have those storage units, so it's costing me money. It doesn't really mean anything to me anymore. I never go to the units to look at the stuff. And so what I've talked to my family about is that my wife and I will sell the gear, including all my masks, and, uh, and then we'll just divvy up the money between our three daughters, and they can have it. And then that way, when, when I pass away, the family doesn't have, have to have one of those discussions like, well, would Dad, would he have wanted to keep this? You know, does he, was this special to him? So I, I, 
I'm willing uh, here soon, I think, to take that out of the equation. I'm a collector, as you can see, I got everything from the Sedin's last game ticket autograph to right pamp all the pamphlets and the pucks that come with it. Wow. Behind me, I uh, autographed Pedersen up here on the wall, right here. Cool. Um, yeah. We collect a lot of sports memorabilia. <laughs> what was it like spending eight seasons? I believe it was eight in LA. Yeah, it was great. Um, I had known uh, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, from 1987, I met him that summer. Uh, I was playing for the Islanders still, and he, of course, was uh, uh, with Edmonton. And yeah, you, guys had, went, you guys went to the Kings the same year, right? Uh, kind of. He went in the summer of 88, and it, that was in August, and then I was traded there in February, so February of 89. So there was about, what, five months there, there that we weren't together, but so I got to know Wayne Gretzky in 1987, prior to the 87 Canada Cup. I was invited. Wayne, uh, of course, was going to make the team. But uh, so I'm at my mom and dad's house in Edmonton. I don't know, mid-July, something like that. And the phone rings. And uh, it's Wayne Gretzky. And I'd never met him. I played against him, and I greatly admired him. But I, I didn't know him. And he goes, hey, Kelly. Uh, you, you want to get some shots before uh, training camp? And I, I thought, yeah, great. So he goes, okay, I have some ice at this arena. Come meet me. And uh, much to my surprise, it was just the two hockey players, Wayne and I. So we skated for an hour a couple times. And Janet Gretz or Janet Jones, they weren't married yet, but she came out and she was skating. So the three of us would skate. And I got to know Wayne then. And then, of course, uh, a lot better during the 87 Canada Cup. And he is the reason why I was traded to Los Angeles. So uh, when he went to L.A., uh, he saw Mr. Bill Torrey, my general manager of the Islanders, at the All-Star game in whatever city he was in. And uh, he started to plant the bug that uh, the L.A. Kings would sure like to make a trade uh, for me. Uh, I had no idea about any of this. And finally, after uh, maybe another month or so of badgering uh, Bill Torrey, Wayne Mc uh, or uh, Bruce McNall and uh, Wayne got their way. And so I was on my way to play with Wayne in Los Angeles. It was incredible eight years. You got to plant those seeds in there just to get your friends on your team. We try to build dynasties on both my beer league and his lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, 93 Cup run, going all the way to the finals, right into Patrick Wall. Um, that a hell of a run? Not to take anything away, but from Patrick because he won and he was incredible but we ran into overtime and, and that's what was uh that's what killed us we had three consecutive overtime losses including yeah. two at home and you're you're doomed if that's going to happen yeah and Eric Desjardins and uh, John LeClaire I think scored the other two I think you had both uh, um in Los Angeles if, if my memory serves me well hey my stats were wrong I'm gonna drink to that <laughs> <laughs> Out of all your uh, teammates, who do you talk to regularly or see regularly? Oh, boy. Uh, well, regularly has a different uh, connotation, maybe, because I know, like in my case, I'm extremely busy, and so I don't catch up to the guys as often as I should. But I'll go through stretches, like I text with Wayne uh, once in a while. Um, we'll go through stretches where, you know, two, three days we'll – 
have a bit of an exchange and then might not talk for another month. And Rob Blake, uh, Luke Robitaille, Pat Conacher. Oh, I'm going to be missing just tons of guys here. But uh, guys that uh, really are important in my life. And uh, I love them dearly and I miss them. But, uh, you know, it's just so difficult in today's world. Now, during this pandemic, I, of course, have some time. But during the regular season, uh, with my schedule, both with Hockey Night in Canada on Saturdays and those weekends, and then doing the uh, Color for the Calgary Flames broadcast, I, I don't have a lot of time uh, to catch up, unfortunately, because I'm working so often. Now, I'll say one good thing about this pandemic and getting caught up with people that you love and they're important in your life. Um, my mom, I call every single day, and that has been the case. And that normally isn't the case because I just, oftentimes I get to a city and I'm tired and I forget, or I just lay down on my bed and I fall asleep or whatever. And so this has been one wonderful thing about uh, the pandemic, getting uh, to my mom every day. I actually found the pandemic to be a blessing as well. I was going to, I'm a season ticket holder, not so I'm at every single game drinking it. I needed a couple of days off now, and I got a couple turned into a couple months, and we're ready to get started again, right? Yeah. You know what? Do yourself a favor, Ryan. Maybe get a little bit closer to the microphone because you're breaking up every once in a while. Okay, I'm moving it forward. Good, but you're, yeah. Is that better? Is that better? Yeah, it is. Okay, good. Who's your uh, biggest influence in your career? Um, boy, where do you start? Um, do you mean like kind of like an idol or just somebody in your life that was a big influence uh, in terms of sports? Yeah, someone that was in your life with sports. That's pretty easy then. Uh, we're a really close family. My mom and dad were incredible. Um, they never criticized me once. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, my dad was just a really gentle guy. Up until his last couple of years when he wasn't quite there and really struggling, I had never heard him say a swear word in his life. So he was a really gentle guy. So I had that uh, blessing. And my brother, I have uh, one sibling, an older brother, and uh, we're still really, really close. Uh, I love him dearly. I still uh, look to him for guidance and, and so on. Um, so those would be the people. And then I'll say, as life went on, now that uh, – uh, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. My wife and I have been married coming up 36 years uh, at the end of this month. And wow, she keeps yeah. yeah, thank you. She keeps me in line. I'll tell, tell you guys a really cool story. So when I got traded from New York to L.A., uh, it was a really popular team, and my popularity was starting to uh, soar, whatever word you want to use. And I didn't really know how to handle it. Um, I handled it poorly. Uh, I wasn't always the nicest guy to autograph seekers um, in certain situations. And I remember coming out of the Great Western Forum one night after a game, and there's a, a few people there. And uh, I did sign. I just didn't say anything. And, you know, that's just totally rude and unacceptable. And so we get to the car, and Don opens her door. I open my door. Before I can even put the key in the ignition, she goes, that's enough of that. You're going to go back to being the good guy you used to be from Edmonton. And so it was fantastic advice. I needed it. I was young. I give myself that break. I didn't really know how to handle, you know, popularity or, again, whatever you want to call it. And so 
I wasn't handling it uh, properly and she put me in my place. And, and I can pretty much guarantee you from that day moving forward, I've never, ever been a jerk to anybody that ever come, has ever come up to me again. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I guess everyone has their days, though, I mean. But uh, and there's also those people that you get on and you wanting you to sign numerous, numerous, numerous things. So, I mean, I get that part as a player as well. And as you grow up, you now seeing different. Back then when you're playing, we had Trevor Linden once tell us that he's not playing right now. You don't need our autograph. So, yeah. But, but the, so the young kids, they sure they think we want their autograph, but we want the older guys' autograph as, as well. It doesn't matter, but the younger kids, they are too famous now because of social media that they also, the target autograph. Yeah, I don't know much about that because, you know, it doesn't, it's not included in my life. You know, I have my own sort of job and so on. Uh, on Saturday nights, I'm not in an arena. I'm uh, in a studio in downtown Toronto, so I don't interact with that. And you don't get hounded? <laughs> you don't get hounded by people? I would be hounding you if I knew Kelly Reed was coming by. For I, I don't leave the studio on a Saturday night until about 1 or one fifteen in the morning, so there's nobody on the street, right? So yeah. nobody's coming up to me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do give those players, today's players, a break in terms of how they're dealing with it because, once again, they happen to be extremely young they, they've never had training how to interact with the fans and so on. And so um, I, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are going to watch this and go, well, Rudy's a jerk because, you know, some of these players don't handle it very well and they're, they're dismissive towards us. But if you go in their shoes, I do understand it because for the most part, it's a young game now. Most players are early 20s or mid-20s. And how in the world growing up would you ever learn to deal with being a popular uh, – athlete there, there's but no no book to that also nowadays you're getting the messages online they're hounding you online as well as opposed to just standing outside gated at great nine yeah. the stadium right yes social media is really that's a game changer for everybody i mean uh that's that's a tough one uh some people handle it really well some people are really engaged like i I'm a big fan of Roberto Luongo, how he handles everything. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I really appreciate that self-deprecating humor and, and how he tries to handle every situation. I think it really shows a personality. But in today's times, uh, you've got to be very careful. And uh, we like people showing their uh, personalities. But unfortunately, sometimes uh, it can just go the wrong way. So... I caution everybody, not only uh, athletes, but everybody, if you are going to be in social media, make sure you're very careful. That's for sure. Uh, what was your favorite color of bandana? Well, it was uh, baby blue, and yeah. for a simple reason. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, because you're pretty young, but uh, in the 80s... Uh, 37. The grade 7? I'm 37. Oh, 37? Okay, so 20... Uh, yeah, you'd re maybe remember. Uh, maybe not, though. Uh, the the so-called underwear that we wore under our gear is like Stanfield's pajamas. That's all it was. But it was really absorbent, and so it handled the sweat well. Anyways, that T-shirt was light blue. So one day in practice in New York, uh, I, was, I was looking for something that was a better sweat band than, or headband that I was using because I had long hair typically. 
I wore contacts when I played, and so the sweat would get in my eyes. It was really bothersome. So one day before practice, I just simply ripped up my T-shirt and wrapped it around my head. And uh, in practice, I was like, hey, hey, you know what? This is working pretty good. I think I'll stick with it. And unbeknownst to me, about a year or two later, it sort of became a trademark of mine. Oh, and uh, I continue to wear it the rest of my career, although I hated it the last few years. But my family convinced me because people sort of it became recognizable on me that to uh, just keep doing it. And I did. <laughs> what was your favorite mask? The Hollywood mask. Yes. Okay. He stole my fucking question. Sorry to swear. <laughs> sorry, sorry to swear. I was going to say later down here. I grew up. I wanted to ask you when you switched to Jofa. You had the Jofa for so long. And then you finally switched to the new mask, and then you put out the Hollywood mask. And that growing up was my favorite mask as a kid. I had the poster on the cool. wall. I actually had your poster on the wall, and I painted my kid goalie mask for street hockey with the Hollywood symbol. Awesome. Cool. So I'll tell you why I chose the Hollywood sign on my mask. Because some people incorrectly think that my nickname was Hollywood, but it wasn't. It never was. Um, but uh, the reason I chose that particular artwork uh, Don Strauss is the, uh, the, he, he made armadillo masks. I don't know if Don's still in business, but a wonderful guy. He made my mask for years, same with John Van Deesbrook and others. But, um, so I really love Mike Richter's mask in New York with the Rangers and the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. It was so distinctive. It was what everybody thinks about when you think of New York city and it was it wasn't cluttered, so you could really tell what it was on his mask. And it was just it was beautiful, iconic. And uh, so when I finally went to that style of mask where I could do some really cool artwork, of course, living in L.A., the most uh, you know, iconic symbol of living in L.A. is the Hollywood sign. And so uh, Don Strauss, uh, man alive, did he ever do a great job with the artwork. They, I, we came up with the, the plan, uh, Don and a friend of mine, Lenny Davis from L.A., and uh, we sat around a table and had a couple drinks and talked about what we should put. And we came up some pretty ordinary, not ordinary, just some pretty basic ideas about the Hollywood mask. And then Don took it from there. So he film reel here. He had all sorts of incredible things. And I, I truly believe that is one of the best masks ever designed oh, as well. you obviously still have that? Yes, I have a few of them. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. That was that was always that one, or um, for me, Corey Hirsch had the ghost, the haunted ghost house back in the day. Oh yeah, right, exactly. You know, since we're on this topic, I, I know the artwork is phenomenal with the goaltenders in today's game, but I can't tell what it is anymore because it's so cluttered and so detailed. Unless they point it out to me, you know, on a lot of guys, I have no idea what's going on. And I gotta there. agree with that. It's way too much. Yeah. Like, it's beautiful, and up close, it's stunning. Like, I don't know how much money they spend. You can't see it from the TV, right? No, I have no idea. Yeah. What, uh, what was your favorite number? I know you wore 32, or 32 in L.A. and 30 with the Islanders. Well, I liked number 30 growing up, and uh, that was my number. Although, as a kid, I really liked 33 for a few years because uh, there's a goalie in the National Hockey League by the name of Doug Favell. And I love Doug Favelle. Well, I like all those guys. Like Bernie Pront was my idol growing up. And I was lucky enough at some point later in life to meet him when I was playing for the Islanders. And that was just an absolute thrill. But uh, so I love 30. I wore 30 with Medicine Hat Tigers. I went to New York. I was able to wear 30. 
And the day I got traded to Los Angeles, uh, after I got off the phone with Rogi Vashon, my new general manager in LA, uh, I had a phone call with the trainer, Mark O'Neill in uh, LA. And he said, what number would you like? And uh, I wasn't thinking, I was still in shock because of the trade and so on. And I go, number 30. He goes, well, that's not going to happen because that's hanging in our rafters. That's Rogi Vashon's jersey. And uh, so I'm like, oh, yeah, clue in here, kid. And uh, then he said, I, I, I didn't care at that point. I said, what do you have? He goes, how's 32 sound? I said, perfect. And so I wore 32 uh, the remaining 10 years of my career, and uh, I liked it. I, it really grew on me. Now, I'll tell you guys this, too, though. So when I left L.A. as a free agent and went to San Jose and I came to terms with an agreement, I passed my medical and all that kind of stuff, now I'm talking to – the trainer there about what number. Now I had worn 32 for eight years in LA and I really liked it, but I was really torn going back to 32 in San Jose and I'll tell you why. Um, Archer Zerbe was a, a fantastic goaltender for San Jose and he wore 32 and I thought personally that he was maybe the most important person in that organization on the ice while he was there. He was just a phenomenal goalie. And a super nice guy. I got to know him a little bit. And, and I, I, I felt kind of troubled that I think this might be too, sur- too soon to wear that number because I had such respect for archers. Um, I, I chose it anyways, but I had a conversation with him uh, at some point. I ran into him shortly after I started playing with San Jose. And I took him aside and I said, hey, archers, listen, I, got, I have nothing but utmost respect for you. And... I, I hope you don't feel as though um, you're, I'm disrespecting you or something by wearing this number, you know, and, and he was awesome. He was such a great guy. And uh, so I, I was really happy that I was able to chat with him about that to make sure that there was no bad blood there. What, uh, what made you retire in 1998? Because uh, I was lousy? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was pretty simple. Um, how do I – it, it was, it, it's kind of simple, but it's kind of uh, complex, I guess, in a sense. So going into that last season, 97, 98, I had a lot of thoughts that my game was in decline and I didn't like it. Um, my wife still to this day says that it wasn't as noticeable as I thought it was, but to me it was. And a couple of examples. Um, You're always hard on yourself. Yes, of course. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. And so... Uh, at practices, it seemed like because I was 37 years old, it was harder for me to stay competitive with the young kids, right? Like Patty Marlowe, Marco Sturm, uh, Victor Kozlov, uh, Owen Nolan, all these great kids that we had. And so I had to be prepared mentally just to even compete in practice. And, that, you know, that shouldn't be the case. Like if you're, if you're in the National Hockey League, you know, you have to be mentally engaged, but you shouldn't have to prepare mentally because you're at that level anyways. So that was a bit of a grind. But here's how I said to my lawyer to really make it clear, because I did have some offers uh, to play another year. And I said to him, you know what, Lloyd? And Lloyd had been with me a long time. I said, you know what? Wins don't feel as special anymore and losses don't hurt as much anymore. And that was that to me was the, the deal breaker that because I was always I was fully engaged in every game. I was uh, mentally uh, sharp for the most part. And 
I had to play with an edge. And, and once I started to lose that, and then on top of that, Ryan and Mike, I had an opportunity because for my last four years playing the National Hockey League, if my team lost early in the playoffs or we didn't make the playoffs, I was able to go to Toronto and work on the studio show on Hockey Night in Canada. And so I had a pretty strong feeling that I was going to have a career in broadcasting or at least be given an opportunity. And so when my, when my contract ran out with San Jose, like I said, I had a couple offers. I dove into the broadcasting opportunity because I thought, what if it doesn't come again? This might be something that I'll have down the road. And so I chose to forego another year of NHL salary to step right in with Hockey Night in Canada. It was an incredibly smart decision. Um, that's the next question. Have you, did anybody still talk to Don Cherry? Am I allowed to ask that? You can ask that. Um, I know I, I haven't. Um, I can't speak for anybody else. Uh, I, I actually, I don't think I've ever really spoken on camera about this, but uh, is he, is he uh, still pissy? Pardon me. He's still mad. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, for me, I know that uh, what I think that was a mistake by Don, and that had to happen. Yeah. So it is what it is. Um, yep. Are you still broadcasting on like Sirius at the moment? No, I'm doing more things like this. I have a number of uh, podcasts and other uh, interview opportunities. In fact, some weeks I'm really, really busy. This week I have no less than two or three uh, interviews like this. And uh, so I really enjoy it. It's, it's a different format. And I got to tell you, honestly, I'm not trying to be a broadcast jerk, but in a normal season, I couldn't do this with you guys. And so I'm really enjoying it. I'm meeting Canadians all across the country in these sort of formats and I'm loving it and telling stories uh, that I wouldn't uh, normally have the time or the opportunity. And I, I kind of always regretted that the last, I don't know, four or five years with the, with my busy schedule. And I, I, I only got to a point where I was only doing like really mainstream interviews. And I think this has been really good for me to uh, get grounded again and talk to people because that used to be my, uh, my sweet spot, right? I was, I was always really good at staying connected, and so this has uh, been good for that as well. Everything, considering, like now they have, you can work out at home, and you have a guy or a trainer on the other end of the screen teaching how to do it. Everything's adapting now to this COVID plan, and you're actually finding some things you like out of it. Absolutely. Uh, to your point, too, that's a really good one. Uh, my wife is really active, and uh, unfortunately for me, I haven't been as active in the last couple of years, and I, I have to get back to that. But the place, uh, her uh, cycle studio, uh, when the pandemic started, they, of course, like everybody had to close up, but they came up, and I'm sure many other uh, spin cycle uh, places out there doing the same thing. They rented out their, their equipment, and so we rented one for our house, and the studio, they had to adapt as well, and so they learned you know what, maybe this is another revenue stream we never even thought possible. So not only now they're opening up again so they can actually have people in the studios, but now they're online and that's another revenue stream they most likely, I think, I think they always knew they could, but they didn't feel the need to do it because they were doing so well without it. But now, I mean, my wife loves taking classes uh, in our house here and so many different things. It's phenomenal. 
Yes, definitely. I wasn't much of a go-to-the-gym kind of guy. I'm more of like a workout-at-home kind of guy. I bought all the gyms, all the gym equipment and everything. And Right, and great. Realized, uh, when you go to a clock game every two days, I got tired. Of, I needed a break time here. And now they, yeah. they postponed the season, but luckily there's no fans now. I'd much rather be on this playoff run, though. Yeah. What's uh, what's your opinion on that? Do you think uh, there's going to be hockey, and where do you think it's going to be played? Well, first of all, I'm an optimist by nature, so I always look at the positive. Um, so the answer is yes. I think there'll be a Stanley Cup handed out this year. Um, I'm really hopeful. Yeah, <laughs> I'm <laughs> Canucks. Okay, <laughs> I'm not disputing that I'm saying it's, they have a good team and I, I do think down the road that's going to be a really great team but uh, I think that I'm hopeful that somewhere in around uh, late July early August that uh, we'll have the 24 teams in the two hub cities and they'll competing for be competing for the Stanley Cup I, I think all of us recognize that most likely it's Vegas and I'm hearing more words or more things today that uh, they're really hopeful, the NHL, that it can be another Canadian city. It seems to me, just from a broadcast perspective, though, if you have the games in Las Vegas, then you're going to have to need another hub city in the eastern time zone, simply because uh, it'd be too difficult otherwise. And uh, uh, at least that's the way I see it, just for how you broadcast games and times and so on. So, And the games will be more like a – at least early on, more like an Olympic format. I don't know if you guys would remember, but you have at least three games every single day in those arenas. So it's a long day for the broadcasters. I can tell you, I've worked, what, three or four Olympics? I can't remember. but And those are the longest days we have in uh, broadcasting. And so yeah. you're at the – what's that? We just, we, we just did the World Juniors last year, right? So There you go. And I, and I had – 38 game pack or some shit and I was at it yeah. all day you're sitting there all day I gotta go through it all day podcasters yeah yeah it's all day and so uh that's what it'll be like again here when they uh relaunch and so it'll be really exciting it'll be tiring for everybody though okay question for that would they be broadcasting you think like live say it's a two o'clock game 11 o'clock game it's gonna go all day these broadcasts or is it gonna be like one game a I know you just said three games at a day but are they going to re-show it later or is it all going to be live uh i don't know the answer to that question i would suspect it's all live and uh, luckily for all of us we have or most of us we have pvr so if you can't watch your game you can watch it later when you get home but just think of the uh logistics of that let's just say in the morning at 10 o'clock they have a game right so it ends at 12 30 or 1 then they're going to have a 3 o'clock game, and then they're going to have an 8 o'clock game. Well, what happens if that 3 o'clock game goes into quadruple overtime like the Easter Epic? So that game now won't end at 6, and they won't have time to get ready for 8, right? What happens if that game that starts at 3 ends at 11 or 9, yeah, 10? True, true. Now you've got to empty out the arena. You've got to sanitize the arena as well as possible you've got to get new people in you've got to get the teams out you got to get the teams in i could foresee because you can't compromise with the integrity of a game i could see a game starting at 
10 at night or 11 at night. And I know it would be awful for the players to puck drop it to 1030 at night, but that might be the new reality. I don't know what the, how they can get around that, but that could be a possibility. I think that if they do choose, like, let's say Vegas is a hub city, the second hub city is going to be in the States as well, just because of the quarantining. I mean, if they bring it here, it's going to be 14 days of quarantining. So it's just going to extend. You could be right. Yeah, you could be right. What was your favorite uh, sports quote growing up? My favorite sports what? Quote. Quote? Yeah, quote. Oh, that's a great question. Okay. Hey, that's what I'm here for. Okay, it wasn't when I was growing up. But uh, I remember my first year or two with the Islanders, and uh, I used to read everything. Uh, I, I've sort of gotten away from that, but reading was really one of my great hobbies. And I remember reading a sports magazine in which Dr. J was interviewed. And uh, I don't know, do you guys remember? Yeah, Julius, yeah Julius Irving. He played for the Philadelphia 76ers. And yeah. He had this great quote, and I even cut it out, and I carried it in my wallet for a while, and I can't remember it exactly, but it's something like this. Be careful of the enemy, because sometimes they dress beside you. And I thought, hmm, I never knew to sort of be untrustworthy about some of my teammates, and it turned out to be, <laughs> I was wondering why you were looking at him, right? Yeah, and just thinking, I'm just joking about that, but I'm just busting his balls. <laughs> but I thought, you know, that's pretty important. And that has, you know, that has stayed with me forever because as much as we usually love most of our coworkers and so on, on occasion you meet somebody that's pretty darn selfish and, and they're, they're not looking out for your interests at all. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Who would you say the best Canadian prospect is right now? I, you know what, I'm going to, uh, beg off that question simply because uh, I'm not informed well enough. And so I hear a bunch of names, but once again, I'll go back to how busy I am. I, I call people and I talk to them and so on about that, but I would be uh, just more like guessing or going on hearsay. And I don't like to do that because when, when you ask me a question, I give you an answer. It's based on my particular knowledge. Like uh, I'll tell you, I don't often ask other people in the industry about their uh, perception of a player. I just wait to watch them and or I do my research, you know, analytics a little bit and try and find out that way. And I like to make up my own mind so that if I'm going to comment on a player, you know what, whether you agree with my opinion or not, that's okay. But it, it, it comes from the heart. I'm saying exactly what I think about that player. And that's your opinion. Yes, it is. He read the question wrong. The best Canadian team prospect pool was what we wanted. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. I like Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, every team has a lot of really good prospects, so I have to preface that. Uh, from what I gather, um, this may surprise some people, but I understand L.A. has a great prospect pool, like really great. So they've been grinding away for the last couple of years, and I know people are a little bit frustrated, but. In talking to people and uh, doing some uh, research, uh, L.A. seems to have a really good uh, prospect pool. Uh, of course, since I work for the Flames, I, I know some of their great prospects. But here's the thing. You can have all the great prospects in the world, but it, it, it's a combination of how the team 
develops them and their willingness to to oh. learn and to do the work themselves. So, uh, listen, I've been in the game since 1980. I've come across some incredible prospects that just, for whatever reason, some sometimes it's not their fault. In most cases, it is, and they don't turn out. And and that's hard to watch. I, you know, I could tell you, if not hundreds, thousands of guys that I saw coming up through the systems and or I played against uh, that I thought should be stars and and they never turned out to be much of a player. Hey, I got a quick idea. We're, we're running out of time here for you. If whenever you got to go, you got to go. But the, we wanted to run through, as long as you're enjoying yourself, we wanted to run through the quick playoff tree breakdown here. Okay. Okay, so you got Columbus or Toronto. Oh, boy, I've been thinking about this, and I know Leaf fans won't be happy with me. Now, okay, in, in this, answering all these, uh, it's in the context of how the teams were playing when the league was put on pause, right? So we don't know how coming out, how the teams will look and, and play. But if, in fact, we're going to analyze that series or all these series based on that, I'm going to say Columbus, I think, would have beat Toronto. I just love the way Columbus was playing. Uh, when the league was put on pause. Talking about a team with a bunch of young guys that are up and comers. Right? Holy. They they played hard. Tortorella had them playing extremely well together. Yeah, we had on uh, Clint Malarchuk uh, last episode. He uh, brought up the Tortorella story. He said he was actually up in the press box, and uh, when Torts went in the tunnel, he's like, well, no one's going down there. So he ran down himself. He tried to yep. get the ports in the tunnel, and uh, McGrath basically gave him a face wash with the glove, and he was going nowhere. <laughs> I remember that game well. Rick Ball and I were the uh, the broadcast crew, and uh, so we're watching it on our monitor. And I can tell you, we have this fantastic director. Uh, he's with been with CBC forever. He lives in Vancouver, uh, and his name is Ron Forsythe. And why that's important is because the camera that caught that whole incident that night uh, between Vancouver and Calgary, that's not a recorded camera. It just so happens Ron Forsyth, the director, saw something on that camera in the hallway, and so it went to program. Now, everything on program is recorded, and so that's how that whole thing was able to go live and for people to see. Otherwise, that whole incident between Tortorella and Hartley and that whole thing, uh, had we gone to commercial, because our, our producer, Tim Davis, another guy out of Vancouver who lives in Yaletown, he was counting the truck down to go to commercial break. They saw the ruckus and went beyond the commercial break, and that's how that made it to live television. Really fascinating behind-the-scenes story. That's very interesting. Okay, I want to get back to my playoff three questions here. They, <laughs> we have Pittsburgh, Montreal. I'm going to go Pittsburgh. I think they've overachieved all year. I recognize how great Terry Price is, but uh, I just think Pittsburgh, I, I think even I may have uh, uh, had Mike Sullivan in the discussion for coach of the year because the way they were decimated by injuries and for them to have that season, just incredible. Okay. What about uh, the Rangers in Carolina? I hesitate with this one because I think they're pretty evenly matched. Um, I like both teams a lot. Uh, I think both teams are overachievers to a certain degree, and that would be a wonderful series. But you know what? 
I think I have to give an answer, don't I? I, I can't. <laughs> I, I got to write it down on the tree. Right? I'm going to go Carolina. Uh, I think what they did last year, their experience will help them, and uh, their back end is really, really strong. I see that going seven. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, what about the Islanders in Florida? I'm going to go Islanders. I think to a certain degree, both teams have underachieved to a certain degree. Like, I think everybody around the Islanders expected a better season than what they're having. Not that it's been a poor season, but I even saw something, uh, I think maybe before the pause or just after that Barry Trotz even admitted at points that he overcoached a little bit this year. And that can happen, right? But so I've heard all the criticism about uh, Bobrovsky this year, right? And, and his numbers will prove that he hasn't had the season. Maybe he hasn't been as good as he's been. Let me tell you, I've watched Florida live, and they were dreadful defensively. So he takes it on the chin. The goalie does, of course. Everybody says, you know, he hasn't been a good free agent sign, which I believe will turn around, by the way. I think he's just too good to be at the level he played this year. But uh, that Florida team, they made a lot of progress this year under Joel Quenville, but uh, I think they really have to tighten up defensively moving forward. I'd go with the Islanders in that one, too. We're kind of biased. The good kid, Matt Barzell, is from Coquitlam a couple blocks right, exactly. away. So. Exactly. What a player he is. Holy. Oh, yeah. He's a couple blocks away, so that's a good city kid wow. here. What's your favorite music right now? What's your favorite music when you were, when you were playing, obviously? What was your pump-up music? I like uh, old-fashioned 70s, 80s, 90s rock. So uh, uh, I'm a, a big Eagles fan, huge Don Henley fan. Huge uh, Bruce Springsteen. Um, I, I was lucky enough. I've been lucky enough, my wife and I, to go see both those uh, artists uh, often enough. And uh, But, you know, that is the great thing uh, with some of this time off. My wife often goes to bed earlier than I do because I'm a night owl, just based on my hockey history and my broadcasting. I, I don't normally go to bed until about 2 in the morning. Uh, and so I get the chance to go on YouTube and watch a million new acts that I've never heard of. And, uh, and so that's been absolutely terrific. I, I asked either my kids or my, my brother's uh, kids, my nephews, and they've uh, uh, turned me on some new uh, artists, which is it has been really cool. I'll reveal this um, because I told you uh, my affinity for the city of Vancouver I secretly, especially when I was in New York, I secretly wanted to get traded, if I was going to get traded, to Vancouver, because I loved it. I loved going there. I, I guess I had a few bad games in the Pacific Coliseum, but not many. I mean, I usually I was a pretty good player uh, in Vancouver because I loved the city so much. We would have loved to have you. <laughs> well, you had some pretty good goalies, you know, playing against uh, Richard Brodeur, uh, Kirk McLean. Uh, Kay Whitmore, Corey Hirsch was there. There were so many good yeah. goalies. Troy Gamble was one. Oh, Troy Gamble, hey. Another former Medicine Hat Tiger. Absolutely. Yeah. Was, those, uh, old Medi those old Medicine Hat jerseys were ugly. Where it just said Tigers in the orange. Come on. You were <laughs> awesome. Hey, uh, you ever seen that guy that dresses up at the Vancouver Canucks games, dressed as Don Cherry? No, I've never run into that guy. I don't think. Anyways, there's. That's, That's you. Me. <laughs> what? That's hilarious. Yeah, he's the he's the guy that dressed up as Mini Don Cherry. This was before the incidents, obviously. Right. Exactly. No way. That's phenomenal. Hey, oh got all his suits. Hey, I'll tell you one thing about Don that uh, was really kind to him. 
uh, I did a charity thing and I heard other uh, people do are telling the same story. So I did a charity thing with Don a number of years ago in uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta. Don, of course, was the guest speaker. I was the MC, And Don brought one of those jackets and auctioned it off um, for the charity. And I, don't, I can't remember what to, how much he got, but those jackets themselves, they're expensive. They're like three or four grand each. And I think somebody bought it for, maybe I'm mistaken, but 25 grand. So that was a nice gesture by Don and uh, by the person to buy it. And that money goes to charities and is unbelievable. What's your uh, most favorite keepsake from your hockey career? The Hollywood my, my keepsake? Yeah. Hollywood just, my memories. just my memories. Yeah. How's that? I have so many great memories. Uh, that's why I enjoy uh, interviews like this, because you get to share and re remind yourself about some of the things that you've gone through. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't often talk a lot about hockey, uh, you know, as silly as that sounds like when my family's around, we just talk about regular stuff and what's going on in the world and you know, our country and uh, how we can be better and stuff. So oftentimes the only time I really talk hockey is with uh, nice guys like you or when I go out with my broadcast friends in the industry and we'll chat hockey and, and uh, might tell a few stories. But most often we're talking about what's going on in the hockey world today. So an unbiased question here. We'll leave Calgary out of this. Does Pedersen win a cup before McDavid? Unless McDavid bounces. Hmm. Well, I think McDavid. I mean, he's just, he's the man, right? So there are a lot of other incredible players. Uh, I think Dreisaitl is the MVP of this year, in my opinion. But uh, McDavid is, he's a... Uh, He's a generational player, of course, we all know that, but the way he plays. I'll tell you a story about McDavid. So I'm talking to a really good NHL defenseman at the time, McDavid's first year, and he's telling me that, um, bar none, McDavid is the most dangerous guy to play against. And you would almost never hear that, right, about any young player. They, they might say, boy, he's great and he's going to be incredible, but you, you almost never hear about that. That's, that's Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Bob Yor sort of talk. When you're, when you're mentioning that at this point, they're already the most dangerous guy and most difficult to cover. That guy is so fast. His speed on the ice is just incredible. What, what about that play on uh, Morgan Riley this year? That was phenomenal. I, I couldn't believe it. I'm watching it. And I'm thinking, how in the world? But, you know, I talked to a few people. First of all, I've known for a lot of years. I, you know, the one thing the really good players have, and I tried it a million times in uh, shinny hockey, and I could never do it because I never had the timing right because I'm talking as playing as a forward, not as a goalie. But what you watch for is the very moment that it looks like the defenseman's going to do a crossover. That's when they, the good players – with that understanding, go the exact opposite way. Now, Eddie Olchuk, we were talking about that play, and I was talking to him. We were doing a game in Chicago in January, I believe. I said, is that what you always look for? And he said, it is, Kelly, but add one more thing. As soon as there's a little extra bend in their knees, that's when I knew they were going to do the crossover, and that's when he knew to go the opposite way. Now, one of and same topic, but that's one of the reasons why Nick Lidstrom was such a great defenseman. He never crossed over. 
He was just such a great skater that if you watch him, I don't think he ever did one crossover in his NHL career. I could be mistaken. Maybe there's a couple on film somewhere, but that's why he is so difficult to get around because he didn't put himself in a vulnerable position. It's phenomenal. Uh, Quinn Hughes or Kale McCarr? Uh, I'm going to go Hughes. And and at the beginning of the year, I my vote would have been McCarr. Uh, based on how McCarr played last year in the playoffs and, and just what uh, I was uh, able to watch in him. But I, I Hughes, and I, now since you guys are Vancouver fans and there's a lot of people in Vancouver will be watching this, uh, uh, I've been uh, my last two months, three months of doing uh, – Canucks broadcast, I was I, I was saying, does this kid ever make a bad pass? Like, seriously, his first pass is phenomenal, and then every other pass after that, I, I, I'm just blown away not only by his skill and McCarr and other great players, but the young defensemen in the National Hockey League have never been better or more skilled, and we're lucky because we get to watch that. Canucks have never had a defenseman like Quinn Hughes. Not quite like him. You've had some incredible defensemen, yes. but not. Quite like him. This guy, this guy is like a franchise player. He is. Yeah. Who is the weirdest teammate you ever had? Well, I'll Ooh, change your word. Got that wild guy. Well, you always had a few wild guys. That's okay. But uh, instead of weird, maybe how about quirky or something like that? Sure, and sure. Uh, had a bunch of guys like that. I won't reveal names because that might not. That'd be too mean for my nature. But. Uh, Certainly, guys. And you know what? A couple of, you know, I've learned this many years later, and I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but my daughter shared a lot about her uh, mental health issues. And so now looking back, what I thought were quirky habits by some of my teammates, they weren't quirky habits. They were mental health issues. And so uh, I think back on those days, I wish I would have known more and I, I would have understood the player a little bit better. And uh, so, but there are always interesting guys right you know uh, i'll tell you a story about uh, one guy i never played with him but uh and i've forgotten his name but he was playing for the edmonton oilers organization and uh their farm team was way out in uh new brunswick or something and glenn sailor called him up this is in the 80s of course and glenn sailor calls him up and yeah congratulations uh and work out the details with your manager how to get to edmonton or anything well the guy was so excited that he decided to drive across the country to Edmonton. So they're waiting for him, right? So five days into the uh, the journey, Glenn Sather calls the manager, where is this guy? Like, didn't you put him <laughs> on the plane? And uh, by the time the guy got to Edmonton on the fifth or sixth day, it was too late, so they sent him back. So, <laughs> you know, that's just one of those odd stories out there that you hear and you just have to share. What was the scariest moment you ever had on the ice? Well, I had a couple couple concussions which were they're frightening and yeah. uh, if, you, if, if you want a youtube uh uh shot i saved on a brett hull shot it's all it's a there and it's all its glory and that was a that was a painful uh night i can tell you and, and or two or so weeks afterwards he got me right in the uh you know where and that was a that was a scary incident as well but all of us you know anybody that played you're going to face catastrophic injuries, and so we all have them. And that's for sure. I'm a concussion guy. I've had it multiple times yeah. in sports, and I fell once in Mexico, cracked my head on, in Cabo. Wow. So, uh, 
So I definitely know how much concussions mean to people, and yeah. it definitely changes you a bit. Yeah. The, um, what would you say emotions you would have before playing a game? The emotions I had before playing a game? Or any rituals? Um, not many rituals, uh, although I had a routine. But if my routine was broken, it didn't bu bug me. But I like to drink uh, two or three coffees before uh, I was uh, really into stretching. Uh, the day of a game, I'd stretch, uh, depending on how I felt, eight to ten times before the game started. Uh, that included on ice for warm-up and, and so on. I'd have two really hearty stretching sessions uh, during warm-up. I'd have uh, three or four in the dressing room before while I was getting my equipment on or before. Um, but my feelings going into a game were always the same. I was uh, extremely nervous, uh, scared about how I might play. But the, the other emotion I always had is that I had hatred. So for me, it was really easy to hate the other team. And I had to play that way. I, can't, I couldn't go out there and play uh, knowing that uh, I might have a friend on the other side. Now, once the game was over, I was back to normal. And, uh, but I didn't cut any deals on the ice. I was not uh, hey buddy, buddy. And, uh, you know, I understand it's a different game and, and players are chatting and they're texting before and after games now. And uh, so I've accepted that. But uh, in my time, uh, there were very few guys that got away with it. Bernie Nichols might have been one of the only guys that was well-respected and he could chat it up with you. And uh, he just had this uh, demeanor um, about him. He was a very likable guy and I was lucky to play with him for a year or two. But uh, he, he was uh, an interesting guy because that was in a time in where uh, you didn't see much chatter. Even, even after I played with Wayne for eight years, and then we played on separate teams my last two years in the league. Uh, whenever I played against him on the Rangers, uh, I can only remember one time in which he, he kind of smirked at me about a situation. Other than that, we never exchanged. A, not even put the head down, hey, Wayne, how you doing? Or he was just like, Kelly, you okay? How's the family? We never did any of that. And that's what I always res respect about Wayne and guys in that era, that if you're a fan paying your hard-earned money, you don't want to, in my opinion, you don't want to game, go to a game and see buddies and cutting deals. Like, yeah, the deal is to win. It's not to, that's, that's yeah, your friend. I see that in beer league even when you got beer league buddies on the other team and you're slapping their ass in between game. No, we're playing right now. You play yeah. right now until you're off and then you can crush a beer in the back parking lot after. There you go, right? Yeah, everybody yeah. wants to win. That's what it's about. Yeah, definitely. I should know this stat, but uh, were you ever involved in a goalie fight? Yes, I was. Uh, I was in, excuse me, plenty in junior because that was 1978 when I started and left in 81. So there are plenty of uh, fights in junior, and I'm glad that doesn't exist anymore. That's, you know, it's just a different time. But my one time was we're playing, I was with the Islanders, we're playing in MSG. So against our rivals, the Rangers, and uh, I don't know why I did this. Al Arbor was my coach, and I chose to wear brand-new pads that game. And, and they were too stiff, and they weren't ready. Al Arbor was my coach. I knew he'd be mad at me because I gave up seven goals at some point in the second period. We're down 7-3. And uh, John Van Beesbrook, the other goalie, got into it with some of my teammates, including Dwayne Sutter. So – 
I knew I was getting pulled after the second period. So I raced down the ice and uh, I got into it with John, which the unfortunate part about that, John was represented by the same lawyer that we had. So that night, of all nights, uh, John and his wife, Roz, and Lloyd and Carol, and my wife, Don and I, the six of them were going to go out for dinner. Six of us were going to go out for dinner in New York City after the game. And I ruined that. So that just didn't happen. But I, I was just so mad. And I guess you can tell that's, that's a hatred part of it. I knew we we're going to have dinner, but it didn't matter. I had to go after John. I'll have to look that fight up later because uh, Beezer, yes. Beezer was a tough customer. <laughs> he was a great goalie, I can tell you that. Who would you say the toughest teammate you ever played with was? Oh, boy. I'm going to say Clark Gillies and Marty McSorley. They were beasts. I, I don't know how you would ever want to go up against those guys. Unbelievable. And there are many other tough guys out there, trust me. Uh, but those guys, uh, you know, how, how you can go out there and do that job and and still be good players too. Oh, yeah. There's definitely uh, not a lot of that in hockey anymore, and it's kind of a good thing, to be honest. It's way more skilled now. Um, there's not really that big goon anymore that no. there always used to be. There's, there's maybe two guys, Ryan Reeves in Vegas yep. and, uh, and Tom Wilson. But here's the thing. Both those guys can play. Both can play, yeah. Yeah. What do you think comes out of that Vancouver-Minnesota series? I say Five. Vancouver. Good, good. Definitely. Because where I screwed up on my thing here, even on my Western, I originally thought the Canucks would play Colorado if they came out of the win of the Minnesota. Right. Uh, that's, that's what I thought. But my, my Wherever I stole this image from has them playing Vegas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know the, the uh, first one is Vancouver, Minnesota. Calgary, Winnipeg, that's going to be a doozy. Yeah, I got that right. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know who's going to win that one. I I, I would go with Calgary because uh, uh, I've watched them a lot this year, but I have great respect for Winnipeg, and everybody knows uh, the season that Hellebuck has been having. Yeah, you're uh, Edmonton, Chicago, correct? Oh yeah, right. I'm going to go Edmonton, but it's going to be a tough one. Uh, I covered Chicago in January when they went on a bit of a run. And I was really, really impressed. I remember they were playing Toronto a few games after I did the Flames-Chicago. And somebody in Toronto was telling me, oh, this should be an easy game. And I was like, no, you know, you, you haven't uh, done your homework on Chicago because they're, they're a sneaky good team. And by the way, uh, I was concerned about Corey Crawford. I didn't know if his, his career was in decline. It's not. He he's phenomenal. He he's a really good goalie. If he doesn't stay in Chicago, he's going to make somebody really happy next year and wherever he plays. What about uh, Arizona Nashville? Uh, I'm going to go. Well, Nashville's more talented. Let's get that out in the table. I'm going to go Arizona. I, I just I think the way that Rick Tockett has those guys playing. He's an honest coach. He was an honest player. And uh, I like the systems they play. Uh, they're not as talented, but I, I think I'm going to give the nod to Arizona. And you were that old school type of goalie playing stand-up. Um, did you ever try the butterfly? 
No, but if you watch me in my latter years, uh, I was more like a flopper. I was just doing anything to stop the puck. So I think if you were to watch me and say after around 91, 92, then I, I sort of abandoned all the stand-up style. Um, and I, I was just sort of like a hybrid. I would be more like along Dominic Hoshik that it looks as though it's chaos, but there's you know a lot of the regular crease movement drills and everything. And, and we just had, he was way better than I was, but uh, we just had an idea that at some point, just forget about style and make a save. Yeah, Clinton was telling us stories, the good stories about Dom and how he was one hell of a goalie to see. And some young guy coming up thought he was the next Dom. And yeah. Never made it. yeah Dom was, was the best goalie. Dom was the best goalie to ever play the position, in my opinion. Because he had no style, right? It was his own. He invented the whole style. He was he was wasn't stand up. He wasn't butterfly yet. He was everywhere. And that's what my beer goalie, like my beer league goalie, plays just like that. Game. Right. Exactly. That's a good guy to emulate. Those saves, those saves used to make are just like what? How? <laughs> What's uh, what's your favorite sports movie? Uh, Jerry Maguire is that the Tom Cruise one? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was really cool because uh, I thought of, a lot of it was really accurate—the interaction between the player and the agent—and and so I was watching it on a plane. I was still a player back then, and I was like, "Whoever made this movie up, they've got a lot of really cool insight." and uh, I thought this was really well done. Yeah, the yeah, we're just trying to think here. Somebody threw a wrench in my thing. Someone's knocking, the door. Someone's knocking at my front door right now. <laughs> I don't know who it is. Well, that might be a good thing then, because I bought some killer pork chops. I've got another beer in the fridge, and I think I'm gonna have to go barbecue some beautiful looking pork chops. How's okay. that sound? Kelly, we can't thank you enough. We really, really appreciate it. Um, we're just starting out, obviously, and this means the world to us. My pleasure, Ryan and Mike. Really fun. Yeah, Thanks, cheers. Guys. I'm all Thanks. done, but cheers, and good luck to you guys. We'll talk right. down the road. Thanks, Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. Take care. You too. Ryan Hayes and Big Mike. Bye, 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 bye. I never stop. I Only Touch Greatness Podcast.